Welcome to episode five. Today we have Ken and Neil Skupski, both top 50 in the world ATP. An amazing story for, for two young lads, or once upon a time they were young, lads from Liverpool. Hi guys, this is John McGann from Max Tennis Academy in Ireland, and I'm here with my co-host Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis in Spain. Together we have created the podcast Control the Coronables, which includes some of the top players from around the world. Our objective is very simple. We want to be able to educate, entertain and energise the tennis community during this very difficult period that we're all going through. Hope you enjoy our next podcast. Welcome, guys. We're on podcast number two of Controlled the Coronables. And we're very, very excited today to have ATP and Davis Cup British legends, Neil Skupski and Ken Skupski. I'd, well, I'd like to welcome you guys uh, onto our Daniel and myself's uh, podcast today. Welcome, lads. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Okay, thanks for having us on. Yeah, no, brilliant, brilliant to have you guys. Really looking forward to having the insights um, of what you guys are doing at the moment, and uh, just uh, just an insight of uh, the tour, uh, your training. Uh, I know you uh, were at college as well, so it'd be great for all our listeners to to hear in on you guys. Just a, a little profile on Ken. Uh, your career high was forty four. Uh, you have a current ATP ranking of fifty one in doubles. You're an LSU All American, five ATP titles and a Davis Cup pro. Um, awesome to have you on here. I haven't seen you in a while. You're looking good, bro. Cheers, mate. Yeah, not, not great with the old pink eye going on at the moment, but life's, uh, life's not too bad. And then we got Neil, younger brother Neil, career, pipped him, career high 27. Um, current ranking of 29 in the world, three ATP titles, also a Davis Cup player, also an LSU All-American. Um, some great Grand Slam efforts as well, boys, over the years. Obviously, Ken as well, Commonwealth Games, silver and bronze medalists. Been, uh, been amazing careers for both of you guys. Um, big welcome, like John says. Thanks for joining us. Where are you now, guys? And, and what's going on in these crazy times, huh? Yeah, it's mad, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, we're both in Liverpool. Um, you would think that we were literally in the same house together, but we're probably a couple of minutes apart. Um, Neil's obviously with our still staying at home parents' house, and I live. It's less than you know three or four minute drive away, so all very close, but feels so far at the moment. And practicing social distancing, you've managed to completely stay away, or waving through the windows, or um, Ken's driving past a few times, just trying to get the little one asleep. Um, yeah, but yeah, we'll pretty much stick into the, the social distancing. Kids you want to you obviously want to see the kids and stuff, um, but yeah, it's difficult. I'm I'm in Liverpool at the moment. I was in the states for three or four weeks, getting ready for Indian Wells, um, and then before I was flying out, I, I was actually in Louisiana practicing. Um, but then I uh, got the call a couple of days before that it had been cancelled. So uh, then we got the call that Miami was cancelled. So it was like I was over there for three weeks. And then basically everything was shutting down in the States and over here. So I thought it would be best to get back before anything. 
And what, what, what are you guys doing now at the moment that, like, uh, everything's obviously you've gone from uh, a strict schedule, I'm sure, and been on, on the move all the time, and now you're confined. Uh, how are you finding all that? And, you know, what, what, what are you doing with your, with your, with your new time? Uh, well, it's, you know, being a dad is number one thing, you know, making sure everybody's okay. Um, two of the three boys have been sick the past week, um, which has sort of limited our movements about. Um, I got a little bit poorly a couple of days ago, but mine's been sort of come and gone quite quickly. So that was quite a positive thing. Haley's a little bit under the weather today. Um, so just trying to get sort of get through this little period of, you know, illness or whatever. Um, but we're obviously limited to the house. Um, you know, we've both got walk bikes at home, Neil and I. So the LTA were good enough to provide okay. us with them, sort of keep our fitness going. Um, but there's only so much you can do in terms of fitness in a house. Um, you try your best, you know, it's hard to do sprints or anything like that. Um, You've ever done sprints, Ken Skopsky? Well, oh, give over, Dan. You know at LSU I was the fastest guy on the team. It's it's amazing that you're. It's this is like perfect for you, isn't it? That you can you can use a podcast and you can let everybody know that if you could, <laughs> if you could, you would. <laughs> Those four times a year are crucial, mate. <laughs> and, and and Neil, what do you think about what what does this mean for tennis? You know, and and I, and I think there's probably a bit of a two pronged question, really. Obviously, what do you genuinely think this means for this year? You know, where you know they keep pushing it back, but where where do you think that is, and and do you think there can be some positives that come out of this period? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's getting pushed back because um, we don't know really when this is going to finish. You know, all this the, the virus, it's obviously going to be a while until they, they get a vaccine for another probably another year. So it's going to be going to be difficult for the I think the season to start at all this year. Um, it's they are pushing things back like the French Open to after the US Open, but in all honesty, I, I think it's going to be not until the start of next year when we can maybe play again, um, which is it's unfortunate, really. Um, but it is what it is. Everyone's health is more important. Um, so we've just got to knuckle down, try and stay as positive as we can, um, and try and stick to all the, the government guidelines. Um, but trying to stay trying to stay fit as well um, and try and uh, maybe work on our game during the period once the um, tennis courts open up again uh, yeah. because you need to try and take a positive from the situation uh, because if you, you do get too negative it, it can cause a bit of problem with yourself um, and then mentally um, but yeah and, and how are you working on you how are you work, both working on, you know, I suppose, Ken, with you, you've got, you've got three kids and a wife that kind of, like you say, t- takes up most of your time anyway. You know, you almost just live a different life, but maybe Neil, Neil without having kids, how, how, how do you keep your mind occupied? How do you take care of your mental health when you're so used to travelling the world and now all of a sudden you, you're confined mm-hmm. to short space? Yeah, I mean, it's, you are... You're basically staying in the house pretty much all day. Uh, it can be tough. Um, luckily for me, I've got I live at the back of a tennis club, tennis club. Um, so I have basically a garden and then there's six tennis courts at the back. So I've been able to maybe hit a few balls every so often. Um, I hit with Ken 
probably like 10 day, uh, a week ago before he got a little bit sick. Yeah. Um, but then the guidelines came in that most tennis clubs would close. Yeah. Um, I've been trying to keep busy with like this on the, the physical side of things. Um, I think that's one of the things that I, I was kind of lacking a little bit um, yeah. with my tennis game. So having this what bike off the LTI and you know, other equipment, uh, we work with a guy, Carl. Um, yeah. He gives us stuff to do via an app. Yeah, we have workouts every day, um, which is great, really, because we, I was kind of, you kind of know some exercises, but specifics he's great with. Uh, yep. And he keeps us um, up to date with everything, and we check in with him most days, um, which is good, really, because, and also when you are, you're always, a, when we're always away, you kind of, you kind of lose touch with other people, really, right? Like your friends when you grow up with. Um, so it's nice to really have a little break at the moment and try and um, text your friends from back home and see how they're doing. Because um, it, it is, it can be lonely sometimes on the tour. No, absolutely. Yeah. And, and just to change gears a little bit on, on a similar question, Ken. If now that I think you hit the nail on the head, there is a bit of time there for us all to reflect and maybe reconnect with different things, different purposes, different reasons. And, and, and because our, our lives are normally just go, 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 you know, we, and you almost just, we all just live in this crazy bubble in terms of giving your time reflection on, on the ATP tour where you've both spent a lot of time and Ken, you've certainly spent the last 12, 13, 14 years there. If there was a change that to be made to the ATP tour, do you think to, in order to help the players and in, in order to help the game grow, what would it be? Oof, big question. Um, I mean, I contemplated that the other day about whether there was probably the only chance they'll ever get to maybe reestablish a schedule that everybody sort of wanted, basically. Because they yeah. always talk about a schedule where Australia starts too early in the season for players, uh, going straight into a slam, stuff like that. But I think the logistics of doing that and the, the number of contracts that you have to deal with, it's still probably a little bit too many things to sort of take care of. Because uh, right now, obviously, everybody's looking at their own sort of situation. The French Open have tried to push their tournament back because they think, well, we need to get our tournament played some point this year but the reality of it is all these issues are bigger than tennis yeah you know the health and safety of everybody yeah. is so paramount right now it's not about the sport it's you know every important that we you know we focus on the idea of whenever tennis is possible to get back and we get playing that that we're lucky to be able to do that there's a lot of people who, who don't have a job to go back to you know yeah. we're in a position where tennis will always be there um, once this sort of pandemic stops and we can all get back playing and, and enjoy being able to make money out of a sport that we love doing. Um, but in terms of changing the sport, I don't know. I think it, it'd probably be more on an individual perspective of people reflecting on their own personal reasons for playing the sport, you know, going back to the reason why they love the game. And I think people tend to take the sport a little bit too seriously because they think everything's about results, results, results. Mm. Um, now they have no choice because they've got, they're going to have nine months off. There's no tournaments to focus on winning and losing. 
they can totally focus on improving their game whenever that may be come about. Um, you know, it's, you can see it in the junior game where people don't play tournaments because they're scared of losing or there's players that are playing every single week because the parents think, you know, get them on the court, get them on the court, get them on the court. They need to. So there's sort of two ends of the spectrum, but everybody's sort of in the same boat at the moment. And you can all reflect on, on what's working for them and, and why other things have not worked for others. So, I wouldn't think there's something major in the sort of the top end of the sport that would necessarily change, but um, it's definitely on an individual perspective. I think people can have a better reflection on on why they play the sport and and how they would go about maybe changing something in then the next you know period trying to do that. Neil, yeah, I mean, what we uh, one of the big problems that the the tour has at the moment with all the tournaments getting cancelled is the the ranking system. People's points coming up and stuff. Um, they've, they've frozen the rankings um, at the moment, but they still haven't decided on what's going to happen uh, once tournaments start again. They were talking about maybe once it starts, the points would all come off. Uh, maybe the points would gradually come off, or they would stay on until you play that tournament again for the next year. Um, me and Ken had talked about in the past about maybe having a they could just do a two two year ranking system like golf. Yeah. Um, so I think that would kind of eliminate all the other problems that they were having. Yeah. Um, it'd be better for some guys because instead of having, if you have a, a tough time in some part of the season, you, you don't have to worry too much about your ranking as much. Yeah. Um, and then if it's over two years, it's, it's a little bit not not as cutthroat. Um, so I think. If it is the time for them to change the two-year period, um, that's something they could do. Something like into like the funds to get into date to like Labour Cup or something like that, yep. um, like the Ryder Cup do. Um, just something they, they can think about. Because I think it's a it's a distinct possibility that the first tournament back could be in Wales next year. You know, it, 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 I think from the two-year perspective as well. I think. People tend to play, you know, in terms of people who withdraw and stuff like that, and they, they, they have an issue with doubles guys, you know, singles guys playing doubles and then pulling out after a certain, you know, round or whatever. Too many guys tend to seem to play when they're semi-injured because they feel they have to. Yeah. If you have a two-year yeah. system, it would give players the opportunity to think, well, I did well at that tournament last year. I don't necessarily need to defend them yeah. points because I've already got them from previous year. Maybe not going to improve on the semi-final, let's say of a you know a 250 event which my ranking would potentially drop down quite drastically if I don't play it it would give them the chance to sort of have a break physically get better maybe not play as much but at least play with better quality because they can prep the tournaments better and and the health of the player is a better thing um, yeah. over the course of a two-year system rather than just a one-year yeah uh, do, uh, how many weeks on the tour would you boys play I would say I'm, I'm a little bit more than Ken, um, obviously, because having no kids, um, it's a little bit easier for me to uh, to play. I think I'm up to, like, I'm on an average, like, 32, I think. And I would say, what are you on, Ken, 28-ish? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think last year was my best year, and I was as low as 24. But when I was playing my most i mean i think i was up at like 35 or 36 and some players are in the 40s which 
not many, wow. but there are players who literally play every week, and it's like I can't be healthy to live out of a suitcase. And that was what would be my question. Just I guess a little bit of an education piece for for those that are listening. What is the rule? Because I, my my understanding is the rules different for the doubles guys to the singles guys. In a a guide for dummies that don't, including myself, who maybe don't know the ins and outs, could you give us that? And is that one of the reasons why the doubles guys are playing so much? Go ahead, Neil, because I haven't played a match. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so basically, singles is different to doubles. Like, if you're a certain ranking in singles, you have mandatory events that you have to play. Um, there's no mandatory. Uh, in doubles, so you can play whatever tournament you want. Yeah. Um, obviously, your ranking is combined with your partner, so you have individual rankings, but you you would add both yours up to get into a certain tournament. Um, and if you are inside the cut line, then you obviously can play the tournament. Um, with all the Grand Slams and uh, the Masters series, if you play that event and lose in the first round you would get a zero on your 18 um, countable tournaments. So 18, your ranking, 18 countable tournaments. Yeah, so you, your ranking is your best 18 <coughs> scores. Yeah. And then if you play more tournaments and you don't beat the points that you originally got on the bottom, they are just on the bottom. They don't count. Okay. But okay. if you... If you play a Grand Slam or a Master Series and lose first round, you would get a zero, and that would class as one of your 18. Yep. Uh, the only Master Series that doesn't do that is Monte Carlo. So basically, Monte Carlo is a Master Series. You get a thousand points, but it is kind of basically it's basically a very good 500. Okay. Uh, you get the it's, it's similar to 500. <laughs> get the points but you don't have a mandatory zero if you leave first round um, so and does that does that system lead to because it doubles guys correct me if i'm wrong guys the double guy doubles guys tend to play more tournaments than the singles guys and it, and it often feels from the outside when i played doubles never to to the level that you guys have got to but it always felt feels to me the doubles guys are, are literally playing week after week and like ken's alluded to 40 weeks a year it's a lot is, yeah. is that because of the point system? Yeah. Is that maybe maybe one of the systems that could change, do you think, to protect the players? I think, I think the difficulty with doubles is the fact that you're competing also with the singles guys' rankings. So when you play at the challenger level doubles, you've obviously got the, the doubles guys, you know, you're, the guys around you that you're competing against. But also if a singles guy decides that he wants to play uh, doubles, then you might miss out on the cut based on a guy who doesn't really care whether he does well in doubles. Yeah. He's just playing it because he wants a little bit of extra practice, you know, a little bit of extra money, whatever. Um, but over overall, the reason why they play a lot is because the, the point system for the challenger guys, you basically need to have an unbelievable six months with whoever you play with to make that jump from challenger level to tour event level, where obviously the points then double in, in amount. So, to make the final of a challenger, there's 48 points or maybe you know 55 or 60 points to make a final, depending on which one you play. And that's almost the equivalent of a first round win at a tour event. 
Yeah. So to win one match at a tour event level, to win in three matches at a challenger level, in some ways you could be playing guys, you know, you could play against someone in the first round of a challenger who you could play the first round of a tour event. Yeah, easily. So yeah. you're playing basically against the same players yeah. for a lot less points. The quality of the doubles guys, you know, is is good throughout, but it's sometimes a little bit of luck at times whether you come up against a good doubles, good singles guy who's not going to get seeded because he's using his singles ranking to get in. But you're finding yourself, you know, you've got a really tough first round challenger match against the guy ranked, you know, 60 in the world singles. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's difficult. And then yeah. you obviously need to get on a run and, you know, you, you, you're covering multiple surfaces then that you're playing across. Uh, so you then have to be good on multiple surfaces to make that jump. It's actually, once you get established at the tour event level, it's almost easier doing that than it is breaking through from the challenger level, which is which is a really tough thing. So that's where the injuries and players dropping down, having made all that effort to get up there, is really frustrating for them players to then drop back just based on injury or you know a bit of a bad run of form. Yeah. Do you, do you, do you think singles and the doubles should be the should be totally separate in terms of like if you're number one in the world doubles and you've got a uh, number one in the world singles player coming in, do you think that that should be totally separate? Does that make sense? Yeah, I, yeah, mean, I think it, it's, it's very it's very difficult. I think because if you started doing that, because uh, the the tournaments want the best players playing. If there's a chance of them playing doubles, it sells more tickets. Uh, it's more revenue for the tournaments. If you had like a Federer and Nadal, and they're not ranked in, in doubles, they're not going to be able to get into the doubles. So the tournaments will be wanting them to play. Um, the only option of if you did that, then you'd have to have more wild cards maybe to get out. Um, okay. But you'd have to change the entry system in some way if you changed it. For just singles, play singles, or you just couldn't enter doubles on your singles ranking. Um, okay, yeah, it's a, it's a debate that we've all had for a long period of what's the right right way of doing it. Um, I don't think it will change drastically anytime soon the way it currently is. I think it's fair enough. I think the only tough thing is is maybe the grand slams because that's where the the, the doubles guys might be. It might be their only chance to make that big jump. Um, because the yeah. points are so drastic, you know, like Freddie or Johnny back in the day winning Wimbledon, they jump from maybe 60 in the world up to top 20. That bit, that is a big enough jump for them to have made a career out of of playing doubles full time and and making the most out of it in a way. Um, but there's not many opportunities for for guys ranked 60 because sometimes they might not make it into a tour event. They certainly wouldn't get it into a 500 or a Masters series. So the Grand Slams are where it's all happening. Too often, you'll get two singles guys potentially playing together who probably don't even really know each other that well. It's just the fact that the number next to the name is good enough for them to get a chance into the dubs. Um, and yeah. you know what? If they're still in singles, then you know, great. They, they, they make a little bit of extra cash on the doubles as well. How do two boys from Liverpool, two brothers from Liverpool, make it into the top 45 in the world? Pretty, pretty amazing. You know, dad's a, dad's a policeman. Okay. Dad was, a, dad was a policeman, you know, just a very, you know, I'm fortunate enough to, you know, have known you boys for a long time, you know, just a very down-to-earth, lovely family. And you've both made it at the top five, 45 in the world. Amazing. 
think it's just the fact one obviously we've got a good location where we live or where we lived as kids it's still in the same same house so obviously you know go out the back garden and you're onto six tennis courts so you know our, our social life and our you know working life you know is, is very close by um so we we were obviously very driven once we sort of knew we had a, of a you know decent standard as a junior player but that was all coming from the fact that we we had access to the courts real quick we had a good tennis community who would incorporate younger players in the club tennis and league tennis um you know i remember when i was young playing at you know, eight or nine years old in senior men's doubles leagues, um, which a lot of people don't tend to do anymore. It's just not common. Um, so I always felt so much more comfortable on a doubles court than a singles because that's all I ever did. I think Neil would probably say he did the same thing. He, he probably did less singles uh, in his junior career. Um, but, you know, dad was the one that was out there every day. He, you know, he was he was willing to sort of, forego his social life when we were younger to sort of take us around the northwest to different coaches uh, most nights and even though we we obviously had the tennis courts there we, we still needed the guidance from a, a good you know regional coach or a national coach you know we traveled up to Middleton to see uh, Chris Pete uh, I worked a bit with Brendan Maguire up in Preston um, there was a, a uh, Max Griffiths who was at the, at the club when we were first sort of starting at like five, six, seven years old, um, and and different people. And we we work with Anthony Hardman now, who lives in Liverpool as well, which you, you guys probably know. Um, yeah. And we, you know, we've we've had different coaches over the years. But generally, we'll always come back to my dad, who was sort of like the the focal point of both of our tennis careers and making you know good decisions for us and. I think as we grew older, the best decision we ever made was going to college. And it was sort of through you, Dan, that sort of uh, gave us the, the opportunity to pursue a tennis career, even though we, we could turn professional at 18. But the best idea that I ever had was to become physically, mentally more secure about my life before making that sort of jump onto the professional circuit. And LSU was the perfect chance for me to do that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's nice you've touched on just you know, college tennis, uh, Ken, because it's, I mean, it's something that here in Ireland, that, like we, one of the things we do at our academies within Max Tennis Academy and, and our Leinster regional program is to basically that, what you've just said, is to try and encourage kids or get them to a, a level where they'll be accepted maybe into a, a university in America. Would you be able to maybe tell us about maybe both of you could tell us about, you know, the positives, the negatives, you know, your recommendations of what you would advise a young kid coming up now on going to university uh, and what, why it could, it, it could benefit them before maybe going on the professional tour like you guys did. Yeah, I mean, the mining can situation was a little bit different. Um, I didn't play, probably, I didn't play too many junior tournaments growing up. I didn't play any ITFs. Um, so I didn't really have the the results. They use the, the UTR now um, to recruit. Um, so the, the coaches didn't really know anything about me. They only knew me through Ken. So I, I was pretty lucky to get a scholarship. They took a took a chance on me um, uh, to go to LSU. I followed Ken. Um, there was a bit of a, a one-year gap um, between me and Ken, so I never got to play with him. 
but I, uh, I played one year with James Klusky from Ireland, um, and I was with Mark, Mark Botel for four years. Um, but yeah, I mean, college was the best thing for me, um, and I think it's, it's good for anybody, really, apart from if you're a freak of, a, freak of nature, like a Federer or a Nadal at a very young age, that can go pro. Um, I think people should be going to, to college, even if it's just for one year, just to experience it, especially all the Americans. Um, you have the likes of Paul Job, who's gone. He's in, he won the NCAAs, uh, Lloyd Glasspool. He's won the doubles, Dunning Lot, uh, Cameron Norrie. You see him, he's having a lot of success now on the tour. And then you've got the Americans like um, the Bryans went, uh, John Isner, uh, Steve Johnson. They're all very good professionals. Um, yeah. So the, the college system is good because I got a lot of matches under my belt. Um, because I didn't really, I hadn't played many, so I got match tight. Um, I got stronger mentally and also got stronger uh, physically because they uh, they do they do put a lot of emphasis on the strength work and the conditioning. Um, you're there at four thirty in the morning. Um, you're in a weight session every other day, um, so it is tough, but you you learn it quick and you. Uh, it's probably the best time of your life, especially when you're with a group of guys. Um, you live with them 24-7, um, and then you go on court and you find your hardest, not just for yourself, but also... I think everything that Neil said is, is fantastic, but I think you don't realise things until you sort of be on the other side. And once I came out of college, it was a bit of a sort of... Things started to hit home how comfortable college is as well, um, because life on the tour is not what you when you're growing up thinking, oh, I want to win Wimbledon, I want to do this, I want to do that. You know, you, you you go through life sort of with them goals and ambitions, but until you actually get out there and realise that, you know, you're going to play a futures in the Ivory Coast for two weeks, and you know the only way to make anything out of it is by making a final or win the tournament, and then you realise like this is this is actually really tough. And it's really mentally yeah. draining. And it's really, you know, you're making no money out of it. It, it. It's not what you perceive when you're growing up as a kid. And you just think everything is, is going to be a glamorous lifestyle because on the TV, it looks fantastic. Um, it wasn't until I sort of made any, out, any money out of the sport and started to have results playing in front of good-sized crowds that I realized that, yeah, this, this is actually, a, you know, it's, I can make money out of this sport and, and really enjoy it. It was a grind once you got to that sort of stage. Um, and it, sometimes it's too difficult when you're at 18, 19 to sort of get your head around it. And too many players get to the age of maybe 23, 24. We've seen it with many, many players sort of down the line, British players who are very good, that they, they burn themselves out because they're so used to playing the futures level and never broke through that level. And, and yeah. they just completely lose matches because they just haven't dealt with the whole concept of, the effort that they need to put in to be a professional tennis player properly. And it, it sort of becomes like a bit of a social event to turn up at each event. And, you know, you make fun out of each other for winning and losing matches. And, and it's, it's a bit of a, I don't know the word really, but players sort of just get sucked into like a bubble, which they can't get out of. I think a lot of Americans do it sort of like the challenger level, but I think new generation have sort of seen past that now. Um, and it, it's things that I've seen over the years it, you, you can tell which player is going to sort of pass that sort of level because they're so focused on what they want to do and they're good enough to do it they'll just go out within seven or eight months they've achieved it 
too often there's guys that do it for five, six, seven, eight years and they've never changed, their rankings never changed and unfortunately there's too many players over the years that, that have gone down that route. The finance to get through that, so you've, you've alluded to that journey and I, and I always think when I think of someone who has made the jump, <clears throat> singles or doubles into the top 100 in the world the quickest, Neil's actually someone that very much comes to my mind. You know, when I and I, I almost don't remember you being anything but a top hundred doubles player, in in you know, uh, you know, and I think coming coming out of college, it what took you seven eight months to get into the top hundred. How long was it? Um, so basically, I started with nothing. Um, I came out of college in the December. Because I did four and a half years, and I started playing in January. Played singles probably for three months, I think it was. Um, Not even that, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> About four uh, events. Yeah, it wasn't many. It wasn't many. So Ken was Ken was top hundred at the time, um, yeah. and he was he had just splitting up with um, uh, Jamie Delgado. So. I was probably at one of few, probably three or four futures events at the start of the year. Um, played a futures with Ken actually um, in was it Preston? Preston. Yeah, Preston. We, won, yeah. we won Preston. Uh, we won that, um, and then we I kind of got to about I think it was about six or seven hundred, and we got a wild card into the the Challenger event in Nottingham on the grass yeah. um, of Paul Hutchins. Um, so we, we played that, lost in the final to Jamie Murray and John Pierce. Um, and then we kind of decided, well, it wasn't really my decision. It was up to Ken if he wanted to play with me full time. Um, and then we, we went on a good run. We, um, we won four challenges that year, I think it was. Wow. Um, I got to just outside the top 100 around October time, I think it was. And then we played Moscow, our first ATP together. Uh, Mid final, um, oh, and then don't narrowly, remind me of that one. Narrowly losing the outs after you might having a couple of match points. Um, so basically, it turned out to be nearly a dream week of my first ATP um, two fifty events um, to one of the lowest points. Um, but then, yeah, I was inside the top hundred after in October. Um, and I think I finished the year probably around the 80 or 85-ish range, I think, if I can remember rightly. Um, but it all it all obviously helps having someone of Ken's standard to play with at a very early stage in my career. And have you ever bought Ken a present to say thank you for that year? Or is that for that, eh, for that piggyback? Is that something that needs to come your way, Ken? <laughs> I think eventually, um, maybe... Maybe I'll try and get him to get him get him into some tournaments. <laughs> <laughs> the shoes on the other foot now, huh? <laughs> what goes around comes well, around. He got me into Doha earlier on the year, which got me an iPhone, so I can't complain. <laughs> so there nice. you go. Nice. <laughs> um, guys, you, you, amazing! You guys playing playing together as well, brothers. It's like a you know, it's a fairy tale. It, when you played Wimbledon for the first time together, what was that like? I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously it's amazing. I mean, I've, I've obviously been very lucky to play it so many years now and 
to play it with your younger brother was it was very special. I think personally, I thought it was more important the fact when we won our first match, which wasn't that year. Um, I think it was our maybe was it the second or third year now we won our first round. I think it was the third year because we lost to Dustin Brown and Yan and Struve. And then we yeah. lost with five sets to Zemo and Mikowski. Mikowski, yeah. Um, who did we beat the third year? I can't even remember now. Um, I think it was, was it Paya and Kubot? It was Paya, yeah, Paya, the Paya Kubot match was one of the best matches of our career because, I mean, the tough thing about that was at Queens, we'd played on a slippy grass court, which we actually chose not to play. We didn't want to play on it. Um, but because it was a qualifying event, they sort of forced us to play. Neil slipped over after the first game and almost like basically dislocated his elbow. Um, I mean, it wasn't as severe as that, but it pretty much, you know, Neil had to play the next turn with a single hander. Um, he, he couldn't, you know, he had, he had his arm basically in a cast almost, um, but he managed to get an injection and we recovered to sort of play Wimbledon together. And we were thinking, oh, you know, we've lost again. And then we both got ill before the match. You remember, Neil? We, I think our mm -hmm. whole family had food poison, not food poison, but some type of virus that was sort of running through Wimbledon. Um, yeah. So we're going in against like the number five seeds in Wimbledon thinking, oh, there's no chance. So we ended up playing a late match and we, we were match points down to pay a Kubot and managed to find a way to sort of win the second set. Um, it was, um, it was, it was a, a three, three set. Wimbledon. It was a best of three set match because of the, they were behind because of the rain. Uh, okay, and then we got rained off. We'd save match point, we were set to break down, save match point, and then got rained off and came back the next day. Um, obviously, totally different conditions, different day, and we managed to go over the line. It was it was a big thing for for us and also obviously the family. Quick one, Ken, because obviously, to those listening, Ken Ken was my roommate in college for for a few months. You know, I'm a bit older than, than him, but he, he he started when I was ending it, and and I vividly remember you saying, and I would, I would, we when we would talk about tennis and we'd have open chats, you always said it was about playing on the tour with your brother. That was the. You know, which that that was always the goal, and, and at that time I was like, "Really? I've seen your brother. He's like, <laughs> at the time, <laughs> he was, he was, he was fifteen. <laughs> he was 15, 15, and and because at the time you weren't really competing, you know. And I guess this is also one of the a, a big lesson, and this is why I have so much admiration for you both as well, because in tennis we do tend to write people off if they don't have results at certain ages you know and at age 21 I was probably like really this guy you know your brother's like 13 14 and not not playing a lot of tennis so he was so, crap Is that what <laughs> I'm not saying that I'm I'm far from saying that but in in terms of you had such a clear vision of that, I guess, is what I'm getting at. You know, your vision was, where did that vision come from? Is that, a, is that something you talked about as a family? Is that, because it was really clear. And then, and then I guess, like I said, the, the story Neil's just told there, you know, it also takes a lot. You potentially put your career on the line because, you know, you were ranked 60, 70 in the world to go back to then start playing some futures and start, you know, doing that. If that hadn't have gone well, your ranking then drops. So you never seemed to doubt it. You know, is that, where did, where did that belief come from, I guess, as, as, a, as a family? Yeah, 
I mean, I've never been, I've never been a massive one from from Neil's perspective is to base everything on, on a result. I mean, I I knew very early on because Neil and I obviously, even though we were brothers, when I went to college, you know, I didn't see him that much for five years, you know, over the summer periods, and then once I came back and started playing, Neil went to college, so I didn't see him for ten years basically, Um, you know, here there and you know at times, but. I always had a total faith in that Neil had this sort of, he had the ability to play shots that I had not seen many other players play. So I was on the idea that there is talent in there. It's just making sure we fine tune it to be a little bit more consistent, a little bit less Hollywood, but always keeping that X factor so that whenever we needed it, we'd be able to use it. Um, Because I was never, I never felt as though I was a Hollywood type player. I was hardworking. I might not necessarily be the fittest guy in the world, but I'll do whatever I can to sort of, you know, do the right thing and, and be fairly disciplined about stuff. And I felt like I could, you know, orchestrate the team to be able to incorporate all of the good things that we could do as a pair. Um, yeah. You know, as I started playing with Neil as a mentor almost, rather than a brother or anything like that, because he had to learn so many different things it was like a duck to water to him to sort of come out the blocks firing straight away, which, you know, it was great, but it wasn't until the second year that we actually had massive issues. You know, not that Neil didn't want to listen anymore. I think he just sort of thought everything may be a little bit too easy. Everything sort of came too easy to us. Um, and then once we got to like 60, we then dropped down to like 120, and it was sort of like, this is not a good thing for both of us either because I was sort of, being big brother and felt a lot of stress going back to that match in Moscow. It took me about six months to get over it because I'd won tour events. I wanted Neil to win a tour event and I felt like I'd let him down, even though we had match points, I missed a volley on match points. And I, and I regretted that, that volley for literally six months because I wanted Neil to win a tour event and we'd won one together and it'd be the best thing ever. You know, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about, oh, I've just lost the tour event. I look back and think, I lost Neil a tour event. And, you know, reality is I didn't. You know, the, the, it was just the way the points went. It ended up not being, you know, our day that day. But, you know, I've always looked Neil and I as one. And I've always put the team first majority of the time with the sense that I knew that we can have a bad day. If I had a bad day or Neil had a bad day, the other player would find a way to sort of get us over the line and, and there were so many you know matches that we've had that um, and as as we progressed it became more of a partnership towards the end rather than me as big brother or mentor it was more Neil and I as a potential top top team and how did you get over those issues you mentioned year two there were some issues did did, did there become tension between you two was that something that, you know, started to kind of split your relationship up a little bit? I mean, it'd be interesting to see Dad speak about it as well, but I was quite hard on Neil. I was quite, you know, sometimes we'd be on the practice court together and I can remember two or three practices where I'm not saying I lost the plot, but practice basically had to stop because I was like, look, I know what it takes. I may maybe not have been top 10, top 20, but... I know what Neil needed to do to get to that next level. And it it just required a little bit more discipline. 
it just required a little bit less um i need to go for the best shot you need to pick the, the correct shot um and practicing became a little bit sort of hit and miss it looked it looked nice but it was never going to trust that first volley at you know five or 30 all you know you need to make that volley and it took a while for i think him to sort of accept that but once he did i think his level went through the roof um because now he's he's a, a, of a very high level throughout his game um and i i, I feel like he's he's learned that himself rather than from me telling him it's i've just tried to guide him in the right direction what was your perspective of that neil and and back in that time you know you've kind of you've come in you've hit the road you've you've broken top 100 you've then had to deal with some adversity how did you feel that the relationship was at that point yeah i mean ken had been um uh, top 100 for quite a while uh, and then we had joined together played um and had a lot of success in my first year. And like you were saying, um, during the second season, we struggled a little bit. Our rankings went down. Um, I think we were unlucky in some matches. and um, But I think we went on a run of like maybe seven or eight first rounds. Uh, it was difficult. It was the first time I'd been on a run like that. Um, but I think Kenneth also had, had a run in the past. Maybe with maybe Colin Fleming at the time, so he he kind of knew how to deal with that kind of situation, and I didn't. Um, with Ken being the, the coach of the team, the leader, he was he was trying to guide me in a way for the best for the team. But I was thinking, oh, this is just my brother telling me what to do. Yeah. So it was kind of it was difficult at the time to kind of um, realize that Ken was trying to do what's best for the team. Um, and not just being a big brother, um, but yeah, it, it did take me a couple, couple of months to get used to that scenario. Um, but then we kind of started. I was getting a little bit of work with uh, Louis Kaye. Um I hadn't had any uh, involvement with him. Kind of worked with him full time for maybe a year with Colin Fleming. Um, so he kind of knew what Louis expected. Um, and what kind of thing that Louis, his vision. So once I, once Louis got a hold of me, he kind of, uh, he kind of changed me pretty quick because I, I had gone to the court for a practice session with Louis and I thought I was playing pretty well. Um, and maybe the first five minutes, he destroyed me. I mean, it made me feel so small, Louis Barry. Um, he basically said, "You don't you don't hit the ball good enough. You don't warm up properly." So basically, I was basically brought down to it pretty quick, um, and then that's where I kind of kind of figured out this is this is where I need to change. Um, so I mean, it was it was a good thing really that Louis. I kind of got um, a few hours with Louis every so often. We didn't see him that much, but um, he's a, he's a very good coach and had a lot of success with him. Um, but also, uh, I would say Ken's involvement was probably the most important. Pretty good. And, and I think you guys, I have to touch on Louis Kai because he's been brought up. His record is incredible. It's, you know, it's, it's absolutely incredible, um, on the, in particular on the, on the double side. 
in 30 seconds each. Tell me why he's so good. Ken. I don't know whether I can use the word no BS, but he, he literally doesn't accept it. Uh, he'll tell you what you need to do to be the best. Um, he might not necessarily believe that you're the best in terms of going to be top 10, but he wants you to be the best you can be. Um, and anybody who can be a, you know, a good professional tennis player, players that he's worked with who are top 100, he knows they've got the capability of maybe going to the top 20. And he's proved that with all the players that he's done, that most of them have made top 50. Um, so he's got an incredible record in that sense. And he has total belief that his, his way will work and then the, the players believe in it you know and that's, yeah. that's basically it it's as simple as that Neil yeah I mean Ken's right he, uh, he doesn't take any BS he has a vision for you um, and you have to kind of believe in that as well if you don't believe in that he doesn't he doesn't get you on board he gets rid of you straight away um, so yeah he doesn't like he doesn't leave anything unturned he every little he loves his stats he loves his, um, he loves good work, work I think. Um, and you just got to believe in the process. Um, yep. He's an unbelievable coach. He's, uh, he's been on the tour many years, coached some amazing players and got the results out of it. So if you don't listen to what he has to say, then um, you're probably not in the right sport. And I can't, I can't have you boys on without, and especially as you've been talking about how, how close your bond's been and the journey you've been on, the ambition that you guys have had as a family, you know, and it's like, like Ken says, it's, you're, you're a team, you, you've been one person. Um, how was the decision, Neil and Ken, for, for the split last summer? How did that decision come about and, and how difficult was that to make? Yeah, I mean, it was... It was probably the, the toughest decision I've ever I've ever made. Um, got the got a text off Jamie last uh, last year during Rome Masters. I was actually watching Khaled at the time, and just had this long text saying, oh, I've spent up with Bruno. Um, I've spoken to my team, and we think you're the, the right guy to move forward." So I was didn't really know what to do really. So I was like, "Oh." So um, I always thought. I would play with Ken until Ken finished. Yeah. Um, and then basically, I got my dad, who then said, you have to speak to Ken about it. Um, so I spoke to Ken, and Ken was, say, basically said, you can't turn multiple Grand Slam, world number one. He was top 10 at the time, down, because you probably will regret it. Um, so basically, Ken was very good about the situation. Um, we stopped playing just before the grass court season. I started with Jamie in Hetogenbosch. Um, and then basically we've been playing ever since. Um, I played with Ken a couple of tournaments here and there. We played uh, with Doha this year. Um, we also played uh, Eastbourne last year. Um, so, I mean, that, the plan is to play Whenever I don't play with Jamie, I play with Ken. Um, but it's uh, it's all, it's not always the best. Uh, I ideally with the, the schedule and stuff, you have a schedule with Jamie. And, um, he wants you to kind of take time off and stuff. But then I also want to play and help Ken. So 
uh, it can be difficult sometimes. Yeah, I mean, uh, I didn't. When you when you obviously play with your brother, you don't think, you know, someone's going to come and try and nab him because <laughs> nobody else, you know, nobody's going to go and pick Mike or Bob Bryan off each other. But you just sort of know that. You know, as twins, that's not going to happen. And they've had enough success together that that would never, you know, come about. I think with our situation, is obviously age gap was the was the big thing. And you know, a couple of people probably think that Ken Skupski's thirty six now or thirty five at the time. You know, he's probably going to retire soon. Maybe it's a chance to sort of see where Neil is before you know be the first one in there. Because Neil and I had a, probably the, our best six months prior to the split. Um, yeah. I mean. We won a clay court title, which you know I would never have you know contemplated ever doing when I was you know growing up. Thinking, I mean, I didn't play a clay court match professionally until I was playing ATP Tour. There was yeah. there was no clay challenges for me. It was all hard court or grass. So for me to end up winning a tour event, I think did we make four finals in a row? I think in the run last year, yeah, you know? something like that, yeah. Um, so we, we're on an incredible run for us, um, you know, making the the the, the, the jump. Um, I mean, just going back slightly, like eighteen months, two years. The reason why Neil had, and I had started to do well was that we actually changed sides. For the first time in my career, I'd moved onto the juice side, um, and it was it was a bit of a risk because I didn't think that my back end was good enough to play on the on the juice, and the righties would be able to swing it out wide, but. It ended up working really well, and it was more so the fact that we were able to make more impression on a point once the return was in play. The guy at the net would move on to the forehand volley. Yep. Um, so even just subtly, you know, them type of little things can change a partnership. So once we'd sort of figured them things out, we were we were sort of making progressions in the rankings. And I think at the time when Neil got the offer, we were, we were both sort of 40-ish. I was basically close to my career high, which was something I always wanted to to change because when I was at 44 was 2009 when I first came on the tour and I, I didn't want my career high to be my first year on tour and never get back there again. So I was very, very close to achieving it and I did get to 44 again, but never above it. Um, so I was happy with that in a way, but I was a little bit sad from the sense that it would, if it, if it wasn't sort of such a an abrupt sort of end to the partnership, I wish it would have maybe been at the end of the year. Um, the fact that it was leading into a grass court season where we'd had our best six months, we had a chance to potentially go far in that Wimbledon and we'd had success at Wimbledon a couple of years prior. I also knew these opportunities, as, as Neil said, these opportunities don't come about. For a guy ranked 40, the number seven in the world comes asking to play with you and the chance to play with Louis. And I wasn't stupid as well from the sense that, well, I thought the Olympics was going to be this year. Um, there was the new ATP Cup, which required, you know, to be high ranked. Uh, the Davis Cup, which was a new format. All these things were, were coming about. And majority of the time they, they play with Jamie Murray, whoever that player is. So, you know, being, you know, unselfish from that perspective, I looked at the big picture and thought, yeah. This could be an opportunity for Neil to to make that jump, and financially it would be a great jump for him as well, and and the opportunity to play in all these big events. I mean, I'd played Davis Cup, uh, I'd been to the Commonwealth Games, and I wish you know, obviously Neil would have the opportunity to do them things as well. So 
to see Neil play, obviously, Davis Cup against Rafa in the semi-final and what was an incredible match was, you know, it was sort of, you know, it was it was great to sort of think that these things that we we'd sort of planned actually were coming to fruition. And obviously, it was a shame that they lost. And it would have been great to see him, you know, go to the final. But I mean, just to see him play almost as good as anybody else on that day in that semi final was, you know, I was I was very pleased with that. Yeah, you've you've both been involved in obviously Davis Cup and played a lot of team events. Davis Cup stories is there? Are, what would be your what would be your highlights at Davis Cup? Um, highlights um, at Davis Cup. Well, I, th- uh, I think for, from from me as, uh, as a trainer, as, my, as a trainer. Yeah. Shut up, Neil. <laughs> as, as, as a tra- as a trait from a training perspective, I got the opportunity to go to the final that Great Britain played in. Um, yeah. As a hitter, which was, you know, I mean, I've I've played some Davis Cup matches, which is obviously great. But from, you know, looking back, going to the final and sort of seeing how they prepared for the final, um, seeing Andy sort of training for that match and the pressure that he was under because potentially it was his only chance maybe to ever win the Davis Cup. His effort in training through that through that week was something. I, I mean, I. I, I can't even put it into words. The amount of hours he put in on the court, the attention to detail in terms of the players that he was playing against. You know, he'd do three or four hours on the court and then do an hour training session, which was, you know, more training I've seen anybody do at a tennis tournament. I mean, he put himself through absolute, you know, to put, he couldn't have been any better prepared, let's say, for the match. And it, it just showed once he was out there, the, you know, the, the level that he put on the practice court you know, he, he was able to play very comfortably at a very high level, you know, over that weekend and, and how the whole team deserved the reward. But his level was so far beyond anything I've ever seen before. And he's, you know, he's a bit of a freak in that way that he was able to push himself so incredibly hard and, and so de- demanding of himself that he would not accept losing that weekend and, and he obviously did everything he needed to do to, to win the title. What a, what a privilege to have been a part yeah. of that and, and not only a privilege but also a privilege that you've earned, you know, you, 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 you earned the right to be there, you know, that's something that, you know, I think in a, in a sport that is so individualised, to be able to look back as what will go down in history as Great Britain's greatest ever achievement as a as a tennis nation. Um, my question at the end of Andy Murray winning that match, the lob goes over the head. Were you the first, second, or third person on top of Andy Murray when he jumped on the ground? Number two. <laughs> You were number two. Number Leon, two yeah. <laughs> Leon Smith. I was number two. Yeah. I Leon got there first. But the, the, re- the reason why I was number two was because I don't think anybody else had, had the guts to go out there. I, I think it's very... I mean, if you look at all the other Davis Cup ties, whenever we win, we don't go mad like other countries. Yeah, that's true. We always like sort of like shake hands and then give everybody like a high five, comparing it to like Argentina where they literally just lose the plot and they all run out and go crazy. And I was like, oh, sack this, I'm going. 
So once I'd gone, then everybody <laughs> followed, and it was it was it was chaos, and it was great, and it was you know everybody sort of played their part, even though it was a small part of you know the weekend. It was it was always nice to sort of see everyone rejoice in the in the moment. Amazing, amazing experience. And Neil, obviously the the recent Davis Cup, yeah, which is your, your first Davis Cup experience. Yeah, first one. And and what a Davis Cup experience to have. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a very different um, format. Uh, it was, we had, um, we did a, a training block at the NTC for four or five days before going out to Madrid. Um, but yeah, it was kind of strange because we, the event started, but we didn't start till the Wednesday, our first match. So we had Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. We'd wait, waited around for quite a long time before actually playing. Um, and then... Um, obviously, we had a tough match against Holland in the first match, and we played, um, I think it was Greek sport. Um, we managed to come through that somehow after being a breakdown in the third. Um, and then we had Evan beaten, um, no, no, Evan actually lost to Robin Hassel. Um, and then I didn't know if Andy was going to play. Um, with Jamie, I was just kind of warming up, getting ready to play, um, getting ready to, and then with maybe like 15, 20 minutes to go, oh, wow. um, Leon, Leon's like, you're playing, so um, it was a, uh, it was nerve-wracking, obviously going up to the court, um, be your first event, um, and obviously it was all down to you, if you won, won the tie against Holland, against Roger, yeah. and um, because he normally plays for Holland in the doubles, um, but yeah, it was a it was a good experience for me. Um, I thought I put on a good show. Um, we played we played a good match. Um, and managed to kind of that started our momentum into yep. the next day against Kazakhstan, um, and then the, the team obviously the media started saying, "Oh, why is Andy not playing?" And people didn't really know what was going on. Um, they didn't know if we was resting them. Um, and then we played against Germany. Obviously, uh, Isle uh, beats uh, Kohlschreiber and then Evo beats Struff. Um, so, I mean, that was, a, that was a very big match for us because me and, me and Jamie were getting ready to play. Um, we didn't know if we were going to play. It was kind of strange because if Evo wins, we don't play. If Evo loses, then it's a massive tie. Um, into me as in Kravietz, uh, who we had lost to a couple of weeks before in the Paris Masters. So um, it was good that Evo had come through, and then we we get to play, obviously Spain in Spain in the semi-final of the Davis Cup um, in front of thirteen, it was thirteen thousand or twelve thousand. Um, the Brits there's only one thousand Brits there, so it was an amazing atmosphere. Against Nadal and um, Feli Lopez. Uh, we lost, but we played a very good match. Um, unfortunately, we couldn't take a step further to get to the final. Uh, but the, the team team spirit throughout the, the week uh, was incredible. Um, and it was uh, an amazing experience, and hopefully uh, we can do it again. Hopefully, maybe this year. But you never know with this with the coronavirus how long it's going to last. Well, I'll be there if you do it again this year. I'll be there, and I, I have a couple of things on that, Neil. One. How 
could you give us any insight into how, how did you deal with those nerves? Because I guess the nerves, the expectations going into something as, as crucial as that, you know, with the whole kind of the nation's eyes on you, but the world's eyes on you, how did you manage to put in such good performances during that, during the event? Um, I think I would just the, I think it was just the, the preparation beforehand going into the into Davis Cup. Um, I'd, we, me and Jamie had played well towards the end of the year, so I, the confidence was pretty high. Um, I had a, a very good pre-Davis Cup at NTC, um, putting a lot of good work there, and I was playing really well. So I was very confident. Um, I, was, yeah. I was striking the ball great. Um, so I was. I was prepared in that way. Um, I think it was nice that the the crowd wasn't too big in the first and second, first and our second matches. Okay. As extend, we had a good crowd, um, but I think that it was a maximum of like two or three thousand. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't too bad. It wasn't something like something crazy. Um, but then, obviously, going into the next match against Spain was something. Crazy, really, going into this massive arena. It's more like a bowling. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, I was just kind of focused on trying to focus on the match rather than what was happening around. Yeah. Um, look, I mean, I was I was pretty nervous. I was more nervous about playing Nadal, I think it was, yeah, rather yeah. than the situation. So I, I didn't really know what to expect. Luckily, I had played Djokovic in Shanghai, I think it was, and beaten him. And also, I'd played Andy in Cincinnati. Um, yeah. So, you kind of take confidence from beating the people, like players like yeah. that. Absolutely. Um, obviously, Nadal's very similar. Um, so, I think I was, I was ready for Nadal. But it, was, it wasn't until I had held my, my first service game, which is the fourth game of the match. Yeah. It, it went pretty long. Probably like six juices, I think it was. Once I got through that, my nerves kind of went away and it was knuckled down and the match kind of flowed from there. And, and I have to say, Neil, on that, one, I saw a Grand Slam winner on that court that day. And I, and I mean, I mean, in you, genuinely, I sat there and I was actually texting, I was texting your brother. And, you know, I, I, I'm sure you believe it and I hope you believe it because absolutely the level that you played throughout that event was someone who 100% can win a Grand Slam, you know, and that was for me. And I've always, you know, looked at you, you know, very fondly through the relationship with LSU and, you know, through the relationship with you guys and the family. So, so I took a lot of pride in that. So that would be my first thing. The second thing... I almost don't remember a, a, a performance like that from Nadal on a singles or a doubles court ever, you know, and, you know, the zone that he was in, how, how was that, you know, and, and as a player playing against that, what, how was that to feel, to feel that on the other side of the court? Uh, I mean, it was actually, it was good really because he's obviously stepping his game up. That means you're doing something good. You're obviously putting in a good performance to make him, all the, basically all the pressure's on him. He's in Spain. He's the, the everyone's looking at to try and get through that match. Um, I think Belly Lopez, was, he was struggling. I thought yeah. he was pretty nervous during that match. So we tried to pick on him as much as possible. Um, I thought their tactics, even though they beat us, were a little bit off, especially when we were serving. 
but then playing two back, we could easily get to Philly. Okay. Um, rather than them playing staggered, then we would have to volley back to Nadal. Okay. So it was, it was a, that was working well for us. Um, but I don't think Nadal, he didn't return as well as he could have that match. Yeah. But obviously, as the match got tighter and tighter, he stepped up um, in both tie breaks, and especially at the end when we had a couple of set points in the second set, yeah, that lob. Uh, which kind of won them the match really because if we yeah. I think if we win that set I think our, our tails are up and then I think they're only going to get more nervous especially Belly and our our confidence is only going to get better yeah, yeah you, both of you have touched the, on the preparation on during your Davis Cup week would you be able to give us a, a little bit of an insight of what the preparation would look for a typical um, Davis Cup week for you guys or the lead up to it? I, th I think obviously with the fact that the Davis Cup's changed slightly now it's it's it may be slightly different um, I mean back then I think we'd, we we would generally arrive on the Sunday night for the idea of practicing Monday um, but you're only allowed to practice a certain length of time because everybody you know the the places that you practice at. There's only one court usually, um, so I think you get two hour blocks. I think the opposing team get two, you then get another two, and then you know the opposing team get you know the final two hours. So, you know, in terms of the amount of tennis that's played, it's all very similar. Um, and then the stuff that you want to do off the court is obviously personal, you know, personal training stuff. Um, so every every team probably has a different way of doing things, whether it's you know, playing loads of singles and then doubles in the afternoon. Um, we sort of mixed it up just depending on who was trying to prepare for what day. Um, generally, I think when Andy's been in the, in the team, he's he's played singles and doubles quite a lot of the time when I was around. So he was involved in pretty much all the singles and maybe one double session. Um, but without Andy in the team, it was it was I felt a little bit more of a um, a relaxed environment because guys were sort of they knew they were definitely going to be playing because Andy wasn't there I think when Andy's there it's almost well we might play but we're not sure because it depends on how he feels um, and understandably so is that Andy should be playing in all the matches um, and that's probably why it was probably difficult for Neil knowing the fact that if Andy wanted to have played and felt like he was physically able to it would would have been a little bit of a of a difficult situation for for Neil or even Jamie to sort of know what was going on. Yeah. Guys, yeah, can the, I uh, go on, Neil? Yeah. No, no, I was just saying that the the, the Davis Cup's a little bit different, obviously, with, with all the teams staying one one venue, playing at one venue, um, a little bit different for us. We basically they um, they give time slots to countries, so they had about. I think it was about six practice courts. Um, so he kind of got given a couple of hour slots. Um, so like Andy in the morning, Andy, Evo, Kyle, they would do singles drills in the morning. And then the doubles guys, me and Jamie, would come in the afternoon um, to do an odd two hour session. Um, so basically it was like that every day. Um, singles in the morning, doubles in the afternoon. Um, until Up until the match, it was a little bit different. We would practice a little bit closer to the match, um, but the um, basically 
many times we saw each other was at lunch and then in the team room for dinner and in the evening because our um, our schedule is a little bit different with all the singers guys playing in the morning they would relax in the afternoon and get physiotherapy and recover and then we would go we would kind of have a late breakfast go in the afternoon and then uh, meet up in the, in the evening okay and guys just a little um a little quick fire round to see how well you know each other as brothers. Um, so you've got to say your name or, or me or, or, or pass on to whoever you think. You have to give an answer. Um, who's most likely to hold the passports when you're traveling together? Me. Ken. Who's the best cook? Ken. Well, not, not, not great. <laughs> <laughs> Neither. Who's who's the biggest party animal? Neither. Neither. Who takes the sudden death juice points? Neil. Neil. Who serves first? Ken. Ken. Who's the coach's pet? Ken. Ken. <laughs> <laughs> who's who's the biggest rebel? Neil. Uh, who's who's most likely to be careless and lose all of their money? Neither. Neither. Tight asses. Both tight. Who's days spoilt the most if Liverpool lose? Ken. Me. Ken. <laughs> who's, who's the hardest worker? Neil. Neil. <laughs> it's on record now, Neil. It's on record. He's admitted it. And, uh, and who, who's most likely to be a coach in the future? Me. I think Ken. Yeah, just because he's older, maybe. You're a bit further away, Neil. I'm closer. <laughs> boys, boys, you've both you've both been amazing. A big thank you for your time. Um, thank you. You know, really, uh, just the, the last thing that I would just like the listeners, what can, what can we expect from you boys, both of you, over the next four or five years? Oh, four or five years. No more yeah. children. Um, no more? You're done? No, no, I think that's, that's it. Um, I think career obviously will end at some point in the next however long, depending on how long this um, coronavirus lasts. Um, but I love the sport. I want to stay in the sport. Um, I don't know exactly what niche I'm going to find myself in, but definitely somewhere in tennis. Neil? Um, four or five years. Uh, maybe married by then. Yeah. Um, Is that a proposal? Is that an exclusive yes. proposal? Or? Come on, Neil. <laughs> He's been no, engaged I'm, I'm, for 11 I'm years. already engaged. He's <laughs> engaged. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Tennis-wise, uh, obviously... Career high, want to be inside the top ten, close to as high as possible. A um, couple of maybe a couple of Olympics in there, um, and then just try and win as many many tournaments as possible. Um, obviously with Jamie, but <laughs> uh, yeah, it's uh, it's exciting times, and hopefully it continues. The best of luck to you both of you. You know, um, like I say, from, from myself and, and I know John will have a couple of words as well. 
you both a pleasure to talk to. I I don't text you guys enough. I'm not in touch with you enough, but when I am, I know I always say how proud of you both I am, you know, from the, the LSU Tiger family, you know, and it's it's amazing what you guys continue to achieve. And yeah, keep doing it, keep inspiring people, boys, and a big thank you. Yeah, boys, thanks very much. Uh, really, really appreciate um, the time that you've given us today. It's amazing to get an insight from two world class pros and absolute fairy tale. Two of you lads are great lads. I wish you all the best for the future. And uh, yeah, keep, keep knocking it out, boys. Cheers, John. Cheers. Thanks, Ben. Stay safe. Thank you for listening, guys. That's Control the Coronables, episode, episode five with the Skupski brothers. One of the amazing things about doing this podcast is I, I get to edit the podcast and I get to listen over and over to, to some of the fantastic storytelling, uh, the amazing insights into, into what it takes to, to be a tennis player at that level. And once again... I have to thank Ken and Neil for hitting the nail on the head with so many of the things that they they spoke about. Their open honesty, you know, two brothers, two brothers splitting up as doubles pairs, and they didn't hold back in in how they talked about that, which which I admire their honesty and also the ability to to carry on with such a strong relationship that I know the Skupski family have. I wish Ken the best of luck in the rest of his career. And obviously Neil Skupski playing now with Jamie Murray. We wish you boys the very best and hope you get back on the court again. Thank you all for listening. As as I say every time, please do like, share the podcast. Um, The only reason that we are doing this podcast is to give back to the tennis community. And I would really like as many people to, to listen to these this amazing education, entertainment and also to energise everybody through this difficult time. So thank you for your support. The next podcast that will be released will be, will be Eden Silver and Evan Hoyt talking about their 2019 Wimbledon Mixed Doubles escapades. It's going to be a good one. Make sure you, make sure you listen in.